Claudius to push out these two believers who had then become really close friends with Paul and partners in ministry, and they would contribute substantially to his ministry. What's the point? That God always seems in our lives and in the scriptures to provide community, friendships to his people, to fulfill his work in their lives individually and to help them fulfill their ministry to the world. And that was true in Paul's case. Priscilla and Aquila were just a couple of the number of people that contributed to him and he was close with. You see a guy named Epaphroditus. It's almost like he was just there to be a a friend to Paul, a minister to his need. But God provides community to his people to fulfill his work in them and our work in the world. And that's true today, just like it was back then. You see a a flavor of how significant Priscilla and Aquila were to Paul when he wrote the letter to the church in Rome, Romans 16. Some years later, he says this. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews, give thanks as well. He says, greet also the church in their house. So they're Friendship with Paul was significant. They, they, in community in Corinth, they had the same job. They're tent makers, and so they, they start ministry. We don't know if they came to faith under Paul's ministry or not, but they were significant to him, risked their lives for the sake of his ministry. A church started in their house, faithful servants, and God provides community for us so that we can grow and be unleashed. And let me just ask you a question. Can you think of a season in your life people in your life that demonstrates that God has provided you community to help you grow or to unleash you into ministry. I want you to just think of that just for a second. Can you think of how God has provided you community to help you grow individually? Can you think of ways that God has provided you relationships to help you fulfill your ministry in the world? My guess is many of us can think of faces, maybe multiple faces that have contributed to that landscape over the years. If you can't think of that, let me just encourage you, you need to be in community, in relationship. God has designed us to need one another profoundly. It's really what the local church is, a family of faith. We lock arms with each other, not to just sing some songs, not to just get good preaching, but to be a family, a community of faith on mission together to make Jesus known. And maybe for those of you who think back to those former relationships, maybe former seasons where you're like, yeah, this was really significant. This person was a really big deal and formed me in my relationship with God. I think one question that's good for us to ask is, have we, have we drifted away from that? Is that just a former thing? Maybe to put it this way, have we begun to believe that like progress in the faith is a thing of the past or community is a thing of the past? But re-engage in the same way Friendships are harder to come by, like the older you get, you have to fight for space to do that, and they look a little bit different, but they're no less important in God's economy for us as we grow. So in verse 4, we see is that as was Paul's custom, he came into a new city, he began by going into the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, and he would open the Old Testament. And he would seek to persuade and to to preach, as it were, from the Old Testament that Jesus was the one that they were reading about. It's like all these things that you're looking for, this Messiah, this Christ, this chosen rescuer, it's Jesus. He's preaching that Jesus 
was and is the Christ. And he sought to persuade them week in and week out, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And in chapter 17, we see a similar thing in Athens. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. It's, it's possible in a room this size with this many people. There might be someone in this room and you don't quite understand why it's necessary that Jesus had to die. That's what we see that Paul was trying to convince these people of, that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die and to rise again. Do you know how necessary it is for you that Jesus had to die? In fact, Paul says later to the Corinthian church in chapter 15, like what I delivered to you is the issue of first importance that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the the most important thing. And do you feel the necessity for your own life and heart that Jesus suffered and he rose again? And maybe you ask the question, why was it necessary? And just real briefly, I would say, if you're in this room and you've never surrendered to Jesus, maybe you even grew up in a Christian home, you know some terminology. You may have walked an aisle to camp. You may have been baptized even. Why is it necessary for you? In brief, the Bible depicts this story that began with us as worshipers of God, made in his image, complete communion with him and relationship with him. Sin fractures that. Through our decisions and our nature now, we are sinful and, and not a part of God's family. We're aliens and strangers to him. The whole rest of the Bible is God developing the story of, of this rescuer, the one that would make right everything that's wrong, bring us back into fellowship with God. How did he do that? Because we're, we're sinful, and God, because he's holy, has to punish sin. He did it through the cross. And Jesus suffered. He suffered our punishment. If you point to yourself, he suffered my punishment, all of my guilt, all of my shame, all of my attempts through self-righteousness to earn God's favor was heaped upon Christ on the cross. He becomes everything I am, and through faith in him, I become everything that I'm not, namely righteous. Through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. And now I have life in his name. And he's resurrected that not only proves that he's God, but infuses his people with new life, the spiritual power to do the things, namely to please God, to say no to sin and yes to God. He gives us power to do that through his resurrection. It's necessary. It's necessary at the beginning, and it's necessary now that we preach the necessity of Jesus' suffering and resurrection to our own hearts now. To see Christians birthed, to see churches started and to see Christians grow and to see churches grow. That's why we preach the gospel to both believer and non-believer because we never graduate beyond the gospel. We never graduate beyond the necessity of Jesus' suffering and resurrection for us because we have life now in his name. And then Paul was convinced of what he preached He was certain that Jesus died and rose again. He was convinced that Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary for all men. So Timothy and Silas come into Corinth, and what do they find? They find Paul occupied by the word. And the picture there is that he's captured by it. He's controlled by the word of God. He's given to it, just continually testifying to the work of Jesus, to the person of Jesus. 
and he was gripped by it in his life and his ministry. Let me just ask a couple questions of us and to wrestle through these in my own heart this week. Is are we occupied by God's word, like in our lives individually? Would, would Timothy and Silas or our friends walk into our life and see us occupied with controlled by the word of God? Are we occupied by the word? Is it mastering us in every single corner of our lives? Does it have blessed control over our lives? Are we occupied by the word? Are we occupied by our commission and urgent to make Jesus known? So in verse 6, what's the response of those that he urgently preaches to? When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now. I'm turning to the Jews. And so Paul's reaction here might strike us as a little bit like temperamental. Like, what's he doing? Almost like, man, forget y'all. I'm going to turn and go to my other neighborhood. This is hard-headed. It's not quite that way. Jesus actually talked about this picture with his disciples. He said, if, if you go to some village or city and they don't listen to your message, then shake off the dust of your sandals and move on. In Acts chapter 13, a similar picture was given from another city that was obstinate toward the gospel. Now, what I'm not telling us is that if we find someone who doesn't believe in Jesus based on our proclamation, we look at them and be like, hey, you take your shoes off and shake the dust off or do this kind of measure or whatever, and you move on to your next friend. That's not what I think is being prescribed here, but I do think there's a consideration for this. As we're being faithful, as we're being faithful to, to scatter seed, to water the seed that we scattered and others have scattered of the gospel, there is a consideration for the fruitfulness of the soil. Like how long do we persist on? As long as God gives us opportunity, yes, but maybe it's not our primary investment in that particular relationship. And God's gonna open up doors for other relationships. I think there's a consideration there. And that's a prayerful discernment between you and the Lord as to when that point hits. But Paul uses some strong language. Basically says this, is like blood was spilt for you. Jesus spilled his blood for you, but because you don't believe, your blood is on your own heads. That's really strong language. So he moves on. He says, I'm going to turn now to the, the non-Jews because the Jews are rejecting my message. So he turns to the Gentiles in response. And let's look in verse 7. Verse 7 it says, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is remarkable. This is ironic. This is, this is awesome if we pay attention to it. So Paul started his ministry in Corinth in the synagogue. He was reviled and opposed in the synagogue. And some strategic, ironic move, he moves in next door to the synagogue after turning away from the synagogue. And what happens right after he does that? The master of ceremonies within the synagogue becomes a Jesus lover. This is a substantial movement of God for his purposes in Corinth. We don't hear much about Paul's response. Like it doesn't say that he goes back to the synagogue to preach then after Crispus comes to faith. But here's what I would highlight. I think one of the main points of discouragement that we can get in, in trying to be messengers for Jesus, trying to scatter seed, trying to water the seeds of the gospel that we're seeking to plant or that others have planted, is that we can run up to resist, we can meet resistance. And so we look out on what we've done and the ways we've labored and we don't see any visible fruit. 
we don't see anything growing into life. And that's discouraging. I know I've had that experience. I'm certain many of you, if not most of you, have had that experience. But here's what's being illustrated for us. I think one is just that God is always doing so much more than what we can see. So at the moment that Paul turns away from the synagogue, he's like, man, you're blood upon your own heads. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. As soon as he makes that turn, what does God do? God saves an influential Jewish man in the synagogue who now loves Jesus. We don't hear much more about what happened with Crispus, his ministry to the Jews. But we know he came to faith that what looked like evidence of no fruit initially explodes, at least in small form, into life. Let me go back to my story of Justin Martinez. So that day, I met with Justin. I shared the gospel with him. Our conversation really ends with him saying, you really believe that? And me being like, yeah, I do. But apparently you don't, so I'm going to move on. I'm going to go do my job. So a couple years goes by. I'm sitting at my desk at State Farm, doing my job, literally my head down in my work. And all of a sudden, middle of the day, I feel these arms come around me from behind. Pretty startling, but I look up, and guess who it is? Justin Martinez. So over the course of this couple years where I'd lost touch with him, because of that relationship that was volatile when I knew him, he had a restraining order. He ended up in prison because of that relationship. And guess what happens in prison? Someone starts sharing Jesus with him. So what this little seed that I planted some two years earlier that made no sense to him, this guy within prison starts watering it, starts planting other seeds, starts sharing Christ with him. Justin comes to faith in prison. And he comes out. I look at his face like he's a new man. He's got life in his face. He talks about it. He says, hey, when you were sharing that with me a couple years ago, I had no idea what you were saying. I thought you were crazy. But now I understand. Like, I know Jesus now. And what's so encouraging about that story for me is that ultimately, we know that God is working way much more than we can see. And I'm convinced, after doing ministry for a lot of years, is that there's, there's fruit that's going to come from our ministry as individuals that we will never see in this life. That we, we just won't see it on this side of eternity. But here's the deception in that, is that we begin to think that it's not fruitful because we don't see fruit. We begin to think that somehow we're doing something wrong. So we just step back. We step away from the faithful labor. But here's the picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So later, Paul writes a a letter back to this same church. This church is a mess. It's a hot mess. A whole lot of stuff going bad in this church at this time. But one of the things he addresses is the way in which the church is following personalities. Some people are like, hey, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and they're following different leaders in the church. A little bit like someone saying, hey, I like Matt, or no, I like Chris, or I like Bill, or Jason. It's abysmal, right? It's it's a bad form in the church. So he addresses this, and he basically, I'll sum it up in these few verses that he writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it's relevant to what I just brought up. He says, I planted, this is Paul speaking, Apollos watered but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Listen to this part. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Not according to the fruit of the labor. Every single one of God's people in the final analysis 
the rewards, the wages that we will get from God will be based on our faithful labor. And we leave the fruit up to God. Because neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So keep planting. Keep watering. Leave the results and the fruit up to God. And be encouraged that God is always bringing about more fruit than we see. And ultimately, there's so much of what we'll do in this life for his name that I don't think we'll see until the other side of this life. And Justin, for me, was a great example of that. The reward may come later. It may come way later. And it seems like for Paul, there was something that even discouraged the great evangelist Paul. Because what happens next is God shows up to him in a vision and speaks to him. So go back to the text. So in verse 8, read that again. It says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So it may be that Paul was discouraged for a number of reasons. You know, Crispus coming to faith was probably a big deal for him. Because usually what happens, if there was fruit in a city from the Jewish people, their response to Paul was positive. What, what came on the heels of that was pretty significant persecution. So it may have been in his heart. He sees Crispus come to faith. He's like, oh, great. I know what's going to follow this. The heat's going to be ratcheted up. And in our fear, maybe one of the initial responses for our fear is that we get silent. Or maybe we're not seeing visible fruit, so we get discouraged. Or an overwhelmingly immoral and godless context for ministry. The anticipation of more or greater persecution. And the Lord says, simply put, don't be afraid. Keep preaching, keep laboring, like keep sowing, keep watering. Like, don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm with you. Does that sound familiar? In Matthew 28, the Great Commission, most of you probably have heard or read that passage. Jesus' parting words, his commission to his disciples. He says, go. Go, therefore. But beginning with the fact that he has authority in heaven and on earth. He says, go, make disciples of all nations. And then finishes up with, and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. I'm gonna be with you. I'm calling you to do this thing. It's gonna be difficult, but I'm with you. So keep on, keep preaching, keep speaking, keep laboring, keep sowing. Don't be afraid. And God looks out on this mass of people. This is a really interesting part of this text. He says, for I have many in this city who are my people. So here's the picture. God looks out on the godless masses of Corinth. And he says, Paul, keep preaching. I have a lot of people in this city. So in this wonderfully, kind of beautifully mysterious way, God knows his people, his church, before they know him. He knows his people even before they believe. Ephesians 1, bear this out. As, as do many other places. Before the foundation of the world, God chose his people. He knows his people. And his people have been predestined to adoption as sons and daughters. And maybe we do well to think of it this way. In light of our context, our world, our city. 
is maybe we would hear the message this way, Crossway, people of God in Wilmington, I have many in this world who are my people. I have many in your neighborhood. I have some in your neighborhood, some in your, your workplaces, in your schools, on your campuses, in your dorms. I have many of my people there. And here's the final words. I need you to introduce us. That's the responsibility he gives to his people. Because nestled in this section is the mysterious way that God knows his people even before they believe, but the call to missionaries to preach with urgency the necessity of Jesus. So he says, go. I'm going to be with you. Keep preaching. Keep sowing. Keep laboring for the sake of the gospel. In verse 11, go there with me. It says, he stayed a year and a half teaching the word of God among them, but when Gallio was proconsul of He's like a governor of Achaia, the province. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things." And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. What significance is this section? I think there's a couple of things I'll highlight before we close off. Is one is you have the faithfulness of God to his promises. He says, I'm going to be with you. Because if you're, if you're Paul... Here's what you would feel. God has just shown up to you in a vision. He's told you two primary things. I'm going to be with you, and there's no one who's going to come upon you to attack you, to harm you. What's the very next thing that we see in the story? A group of people seem to come upon Paul to attack and to harm him. So if you're Paul, you're in that seat. You're like, Lord, this, this sure doesn't feel like, it doesn't seem like it's consistent with what you just promised me. Anybody ever been in that place where your circumstances don't feel like they're consistent with the promises of God? But in a similar way to what we said earlier, God is always doing much more than what we can see. And we also know that God often works on a just-in-time basis. And so Luke seems to accentuate the fact that right before Paul was going to step in to try to figure out how to mitigate the damage to his own life and ministry, what happens? Paul doesn't have to say a word. That God uses this godless governor to step in, and he basically paves the way for a year and a half of ministry for Paul. He says, hey, this stuff is all Jewish stuff. If there's some violation of Roman law, you could come here and I'd take care of it. But as it is, it's an issue of your law and names and things that you're worried about. So you take care of it. He pushes them out. And that essentially paves the way for fruitful ministry for Paul for the years and months to come. And maybe there's something that you and I need to hear in that too. Is that God is faithful to his promises. And we can't trust our feelings based on our circumstances. So when God God's promises seem to stand in contrast with what we feel, what we see. We always have to stay rooted in the scriptures and know that our timing isn't God's timing. His ways are not our ways. And it may be that he's going to operate just in time. 
to pave the way for fruitfulness and greater measures of faithfulness. But God is always doing more than what we see and what we know. And he is always, church family, he is always true to his promises and true to his word. He's faithful now and forever more. As we finish off, let me just, by way of encouragement, as your friend, as your brother, as your pastor, just deliver to you maybe some of the same messages from this text. Is don't stop. Like, don't stop preaching. Like, don't stop speaking about Jesus. Don't even worry how you sound. Don't let the fear of whether or not you have the right answers keep you from speaking about the Lord Jesus, the one who alone can provide hope and life to a lost world. Keep going. The same promise is present for you that was present and given to Paul. He's with us. He's, he's with you. All authority has been given to him in heaven and earth. And so he's told us to go. He said he's going to be with us. He's still with us now through our meager fumblings of evangelism and attempts to speak of Christ. That He's faithful still. And I think you know just as well as I do. And praying for my own heart, even for my neighborhood. Because I feel like there's been a loss of urgency and compassion for my neighborhood. As I look around and the situation where like there's many people that would just be content to drive in their garage and never shake hands, never interact. And what are we going to do? Like God has put us. He's determined the boundaries of our habitation. You see that in Acts chapter 17. He's put us in places. Why? So that people might reach out for him, that they might find him, even though he's not far from any one of us. And they might find in us faithful messengers who just faithfully live out the gospel, its implications in our lives. We evaluate our life through the word of God. It captures us. And we also give it away to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus as the only one who brings people from darkness into his marvelous light. And maybe the invitation we could say is the same, is we need to introduce them to him. So let's pray to that end. Invite the worship team back up. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Let's pray as we close off our time and sing one last song as we go. And Father, I am I'm certain that for every single one of us in this room, you have various degrees of faithfulness and evangelism and mission, various levels of maturity, the amount of years we've been walking with you that every single one of us needs to to feel an increase and a sense of urgency in this life to make you known, Jesus, and to speak of your name, to feel the necessity of the gospel, that Jesus died in the place of sinners and he's rescued sinners through his victorious life. Would you give us the urgency that we don't have left to ourselves? Would you give us the wisdom that we lack in moments where we need it? I just even think, Jesus, about the way you encourage your disciples and the moments where people capture them and oppose them. You told them, hey, don't worry about the things that you're going to say in those moments because the Spirit will show you. Would we trust you enough to trust your Spirit to give us boldness and wisdom? I pray as well that we would do this in the context of community, that we take community seriously, that we take friendship seriously as your design for your people, for growth and for effectiveness in our call to make you known. And God, I pray that, Lord Jesus, I pray that, that you would be, your return would be to us, our blessed hope, the appearing that one day when you're going to return, 
Yeah, what we know now in part, we're going to know in full. And I pray that the eminence of that day, the certainty of that day, the unknown timing of that day would lead us to live a life given to the things of God. That we wouldn't in any way in our lives, because we're dancing around with sin or compromising in certain areas, shy away from you at your return, but that we'd be fully given to you so that we would be able to look up, as it were, into the clouds that day and say, come, Lord, even so, come quickly. It's well with our soul because you purchased us, made us your own, and by your grace and all of our failure and frailty, you're holding us still. We love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for life in his name. And we pray that this psalm would just be a, a way for us to respond and worship for all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together.